0: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today, we are talking about breast cancer. This weekend, the Susan G. Komen race is happening, and I have Dr. William Louie on the line. He is a medical oncologist at Castle Adventist Hospital, and we are going to be talking about some of the myths that are out there about breast cancer, getting the correct answer to those questions, and then also talking about some of the other elements that women may encounter or in some cases, men, if they're dealing with a diagnosis of breast cancer. So thank you for joining me on the show today, Dr. Louis. Thank you for the invitation. Let's jump right into myth busting. I will mention some things that I've heard people wonder about and say to me, and you tell me, is that correct? Or maybe not so much. All right. So starting with one of the issues on our list, can injuries to breast tissue cause breast cancer myth yes or no
1: it's a myth some people uh, are have scar tissue or fat necrosis from injuries or an injury may bring their attention to a lump that was previously hidden but uh, usually it's not that way
0: all lumps are cancer
1: that's a myth Because there are benign lumps and there are malignant lumps. And most of them are benign.
0: Now, breast pain is a sign of cancer. Myth or not a myth?
1: Uh, It's a myth. Usually, breast pain is not a sign uh, for cancer. Okay. Let's see. One one surgeon estimated only about 1% of women... Diagnosed with breast cancer uh, occur after they have pain in their breast. But if they're doing the breast exam and they notice an the area of tenderness, that can sometimes be a clue.
0: So, what should they do if they do a self exam and they notice a little bit of tenderness, but it's not necessarily pain?
1: Come in and see your doctor, and then we can get some tests to uh, help figure out what's going on. And, Sometimes that's the best thing for dealing with some of the anxiety about breast cancer.
0: When in doubt, go check it out. Okay, now breast cancer only happens in older women—myth or not?
1: That's a myth because we are seeing women uh, in the twenties and thirties, and whereas in the past we might see uh, middle age and older, now we're seeing a whole range. And uh, what's really important is getting to. Know your own body and getting the screening tests and working with your primary care doctor.
0: Okay, men can have this as well. Is that a myth or is that not a myth?
1: That's true. It, men can have breast cancer. It's less common. There's only oh, in the United States estimated about two thousand to three thousand that have it. Uh, but men can have a higher mortality than women, just because it may be ignored and be detected at a higher stage. So uh, it's true that men can get breast cancer.
0: Is it true or false? Underwires are associated with the higher risk of cancer.
1: That's false. That's a myth.
0: Another myth. So no, no real truth to the fact that using an underwire versus not, any greater risk.
1: No evidence to support that.
0: Okay. Cell phones. Cell phones could increase your risk.
1: Uh, no evidence for that either.
0: Another uh, myth. That's a myth. Okay. Mammograms don't prevent breast cancer, they just detect it.
1: That's true. It just detects. And we have a saying that early detection, early screening, early detection, and better treatment outcomes.
0: Okay. A couple more myths we want to go over breast cancer. Contagious. Myth or not a myth?
1: That's a myth. Can't catch breast cancer.
0: Okay. Larger breast tissue is a lower risk for cancer.
1: Uh, Actually, size does not matter for breast cancer. Uh, There is the myth that uh, women with bigger breasts have um, increased risk for breast cancer, but that's not true. Uh, We see it in all shapes and sizes, all ethnic groups, and all age groups as
0: well. Okay, one last myth. My favorite, eating too much sugar. Could that increase that's a your myth. risk? Myth. That's, uh, that's a myth. It's the only one I'm so happy about.
1: Sugars cause a lot of other problems. For example, if you have diabetes, that's not so good, but it doesn't cause the breast cancer.
0: So from what you've seen after many years in the field of oncology, do we in medicine have any idea of what we now know what doesn't cause breast cancer. Do we know what does?
1: Ah, there's actually lots and lots of research into that. And, and only about one in 10 are inherited. So you might hear whether it breast cancer runs in families and, families, and they might have uh, BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes. And there's a lot of other genes we're discovering, as well as a PALB2 or the RAD51. So there are definitely ones that are genetic-based, but you not only have to have the gene, but also a uh, a carcinogen or something that stimulates that. So the vast majority of breast cancers are what we call spontaneous mutations, uh, rather than from any one particular cause.
0: On average... How many women will get breast cancer? Is it, I remember the statistics from a few years ago, it was like one in 10. And then I think it almost came down to like one in eight. Do we have any idea on what the average is now?
1: Uh, It's still about one in eight if you live to 90. So if you look in Hawaii and this uh, epidemiology data, we have about 1,200 new cases a year, all ages. And that's actually a little higher than the national average. So if you're a statistician, you like it per 100,000. National is about 100 per 100,000. And Hawaii, we have about 140 new cases per 100,000.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: We actually have ethnic disparity. So there are some ethnic groups that are higher rates. Higher rate for breast cancer and in fact all cancers.
0: Do you think that's just because of a genetic issue or is it because of the availability of screening testing or do we have are we doing research to try and figure out what that might be?
1: Yes it's probably all of the above where is the access to care the quality of the mammography and the follow-up which probably is a key thing because if you're being squeezed between two hard steel cold steel plates, you're not going to come back for follow-up. So the follow-up is really important, and establishing a good relationship with your primary care physician or primary care provider, excuse me, uh, is really important. And uh, they might find something small and want to follow up and see how it develops.
0: All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We have Dr. William Louie on the line. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the other unique aspects of how breast cancer is treated now versus how it might have been even 5, 10 years ago. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Shamanad University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I have Dr. William Louie on the line. He is a medical oncologist at Castle Adventist Hospital. And today we're talking about breast cancer. Right before the break, we went over a couple of myths, things that people might have thought are associated with either higher risks, or in some cases, no risk for breast cancer. And we talked a little bit about Hawaii's increased rates of breast cancer compared to the rates nationally. Now, Sometimes we learn a lot. Well, hopefully we learn a lot in medicine. And over the years, we see that the way that we approach different diagnoses is different now than it was maybe back when you or I were in training. What are some of the ways that breast cancer treatment has advanced in the last several years?
1: Well, certainly we have new and better treatments. We also have new and better medications with fewer side effects. One of the treatments that's really changed uh, a lot of what we do is immunotherapy and also molecular targeted therapy. So it used to be surgery followed by chemotherapy, followed by radiation, followed by hormonal therapy if it was positive ERPR.
0: Nowadays,
1: uh, we will be giving treatment up front so as to shrink it the primary tumor and any uh, microscopic disease, and we'll bring all of our best drugs up front and combine it with immunotherapy.
0: So when we talk about immunotherapy or molecular targeted therapy, you know, that sounds like a mouthful. How would you explain that? What would you consider to be immunotherapy?
1: Well, I separate out the uh, immunotherapy versus molecular targeted therapy. So, if you're thinking about molecular targeted therapy and you have a bow and arrow and you have a target, that bow and arrow can go straight. You aim it right and you have a good target, you can uh, hit the bullseye and then block either the uh, causative gene or the important growth enzyme that uh, affects the, the tumor. And so, we've had. Uh, for the past 10 years, molecular targeted therapy that's uh, very effective in going after the causative uh, uh, cancer or growth uh, factors or the growth pathway.
0: So in how do contrast, you know if you have yeah. Oh, yeah. a molecular target that this therapy can actually, can actually try question. and go towards?
1: So we do a whole panel of testing these days. It's not just the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor, but we'll do HER2 testing. We'll do a whole bunch of other testing that helps us determine what's the best combination for treatment. So those are the molecular-targeted therapies. And in contrast, the immunotherapy is where we actually turbocharge your immune system to fight against the cancer cells. So there has been always been a sense that, your immune immune system can fight against cancer. But uh, over the years, we found out that cancer cells are very sneaky, and they actually can camouflage themselves from your immune system, whereas our newest, latest therapies takes off that camouflage and allows the immune system to uh, go after the uh, cancer cells. So those are what we call checkpoint inhibitors, and the was so important in our approach to cancer that the person who did a lot of the basic research uh, got the Nobel Prize of Medicine.
0: So similar to how you would find out if you have a molecular target that requires therapy, there's a panel of genetic tests that you do. How would you find out if you were a candidate for immunotherapy?
1: Uh, The same sort of process. You send off a tissue uh, or the blood, um, and you check for specific genes. And so there's the ones where we look at for the HER2, we look at uh, the PDL1, which is important for the immunotherapy, and those are help us uh, narrow down over the 100 uh, different drugs, which one will be the best one. So it's what we used to call personalized uh, medicine. So we're really trying to give the best combination of drugs with a few side effects.
0: Well, it certainly sounds like we've moved from what I remember in training, like you said, chemo, radiation, hormone therapy, we've really advanced significantly. Have we seen that these additional types of therapies, whether it be molecular targeted therapy or immunotherapy, are they improving how people do? Are women living longer with breast cancer? Are they going into remission sooner?
1: Absolutely. Uh, We have really good studies, long-term follow-up. We're talking 10-year follow-up, showing both uh, overall survival and disease-free survival, what we call recurrence uh, disease-free survival. So they're not coming back. People are living longer, and they have better quality of life. Uh, But it often will take a multidisciplinary approach, to the treatment. So there's certainly the role for the surgeon. There's certainly the role for the radiation oncologist working with the medical oncologist. And for quality of life, yes, there's, uh, physical therapists are important for range of motion or dealing with some of the lymphedema, because we'll still see lymphedema in uh, women with cancer.
0: Speaking of lymphedema, sometimes there's something called a sentinel node biopsy. What exactly is that, and who needs it?
1: Ah, yes. Uh, since the 1980s, I believe, there's uh, advocates saying that the old-fashioned surgery was just too extensive. So we're um, trying to figure out how to decrease the toxicity of surgery without losing its effectiveness. And the day of the modified radical mastectomy, you tried to take out as many lymph nodes as possible. But there were side effects, including swelling, tenderness, pain, uh, lymphedema. And so uh, some very brave uh, pioneers uh, started using the sentinel lymph node. So if you're thinking about uh, a sentry who's out guarding the uh, camp, you might he or she might be a mile away or half a mile away, and it's the first warning system for the cancer. So you might have a primary tumor, and when it breaks off from the primary site and then starts m- moving or metastasizing, it will go to a uh, lymph node that's nearby. Sometimes it will skip that area, but it's pretty good chances it will be in the nearby area. So they've done different tests and techniques to try to find that Then take out 20 or 30 lymph nodes and cause uh, the side effects of uh, surgery. So, there's been a lot of people uh, and advocating that, and over the years, it's become really well accepted, well established, and effective in identifying those, that lymph node or lymph nodes. It sometimes could be more than one lymph node. So, we'll be really interested when the surgeon says, Oh, uh, lymph node looks clear. So, I fact, whew, that's good. Or they say it's uh, positive. Then we have a lot of discussion do we need to go further with surgery or do we treat it with chemotherapy and immunotherapy prior to surgery or do we give it radiation? So, that's where there's a lot of um, discussions. And multidisciplinary conferences will spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's the best approach given. This particular case?
0: Well, it's always good for people to know that. Their particular situation is being discussed at a higher level. You know, a lot of times we think that doctors get together and have conferences, and in this case, they literally physically do. They're in the same place, or they're on the same screen, looking at the same case, looking at the same tissue, and all working together to come up with a comprehensive approach on what might be the most appropriate for each individual patient, given all of the parameters of what's going on with their care. How often does that happen?
1: Very true. Very true. Well, different places have uh, their tumor uh, conferences. Each of the major health systems have tumor conferences. And it's true that two heads are better than one. And often we'll have 10 or 15 doctors all uh, going into the online conferences or talking about uh, things as well. And it's nice to have a diversity of opinion. And uh, we'll often have uh, doctors from other institutions in Hawaii that are not part of the primary place, but they all contribute because we all want to give the best care to people. And there's some people who, like myself who have gray hair or no hair and who've seen how care has evolved. And it's nice to also hear people have gone away to the mainland and bring back the newest, latest thinking.
0: Well, it always means you can be treated with the latest care right here at home i'm dr kathleen kozak you're listening to the body show when we come back we're going to continue our discussion with dr william louis of castle adventist hospital and we're going to talk some more about what are some of the best modalities to try and screen for breast cancer and if you've had it how does that screening process change over time we'll be right back stay with us Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. William Louie on the line. He is a medical oncologist at Castle Adventist Hospital and has decades of experience in various locations here in the islands on helping to navigate the diagnosis of cancer and to help individuals who have that diagnosis get treated with the latest options that are available to them right here on the in the islands now right before the break we were talking about different modalities and this tumor board conference that often takes place where a lot of folks weigh in on what is possible for individual cases before we get to that point there's often screening modalities at the top of the show we talked a little bit about mammograms helping to provide earlier screening for the diagnosis of breast cancer, well, earlier diagnosis, shall we say. The screening process will determine if you have an abnormality, and if you catch something early, it's always better than if you catch something much more advanced and later. But that's not the only type of modality that people use for screening. Now, a couple of years ago, they started doing what are called 3D mammograms, and that gives a different view of what's going on with breast tissue. Has that replaced the standard mammogram, or is it used only in selective cases?
1: Well, uh, at Castle we have 3D and 2D. So uh, I find that 3D does give that additional viewpoint, and it's very helpful in looking at uh, what looks like really shadows, and sometimes it's very hard to distinguish. Thing. So we rely on um, our experienced mammographers, a radiologist who really specialize in reading mammography. And those studies have shown that you have someone who does that all the time, they're going to be a lot better. And so, yes, we'll be actually getting our second 3D mammogram here at CASO, and we'll also have uh, different types of mammograms techniques to increase our sensitivity. So we have tomograms, we have digital, we have computer-assisted mammographies, as well as uh, complementary uh, tests such as ultrasound. Ultrasound does not look, use X-rays. It uses essentially sonar on your uh, breasts, and so it can tell us if it's something solid or cystic or filled with fluid, or you know, does that look suspicious? And uh, sometimes it's it's given the anatomy, it's uh, it's a way to get a different look at something. So if there's an abnormal screening mammogram, we'll go to a diagnostic mammogram, whether it be 3D or digital, and then we may add all and we'll always uh, pair that with the ultrasound. And in some cases, we'll ask for MRI of the breast as well.
0: And what does that tell you that's different than doing the other types of screening with mammography and ultrasound? Is an MRI more specific? Does it help to target certain areas?
1: Uh, the MRI is very uh, detailed, so there is a problem that it picks up too much sometimes so what we pick up uh, false positive so it will take really skilled MRI radiologists looking at for breasts and figure out is that little object there a blood vessel or a lymph node or stuff? so we usually don't use that as a routine screening uh, unless a person is high risk and that and uh, since the 1990s Germans have used MRIs uh, for anyone who has a BRCA 1 or 2 carrier. So, anyone who is at high risk uh, may be eligible for an MRI, uh, as well as high risk testing, gene testing. So, we'll often combine uh, our 3D mammography with uh, gene testing to determine if they're high risk. And we'll use a Gale model to calculate whether or not they're high percentage. I believe it's like if you exceed 5% then you're eligible to have some of these uh, high-risk screening testing.
0: Is having a previous history of cancer, having cancer diagnosed in the past, does that put you at a high-risk category?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. So say you had breast cancer on the right side. There's a 1% chance per year that you'll have one on the opposite side, the left side. And if you have a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation which increases the risk of breast cancer in general then the risk for a contralateral breast cancer is about 14%. So that's one 1 in 8, I believe. So and 1% per year. So you live 20 years, it's going to be about 20% chance you can have one on the opposite side. So that's why we like to check both sides.
0: And when you do that type of testing, is there a preference for doing the different type of more investigative evaluation, like the 3D mammogram, or even including ultrasound for those women who have had breast cancer, or do they often do MRI if they're in such a high-risk category? What's the preferred screening modality if someone already has a history of cancer and fits into that high-risk category?
1: Well, that's a real complicated one, and we argue all the time about whether or not uh, someone should continue to get the diagnostic mammograms or should they go back to screening mammograms after so many years. Uh, my own particular preference is that we want to catch things early, So stitch stitching time saves nine, so I will push for uh, the uh, most sensitive imaging at that point. And hopefully uh, they'll have the insurance cover that. Not always the case because there's so many different plans and different coverages out there.
0: With the situation of mammograms, we know that these days there are young women who can get diagnosed with breast cancer as much as there are older women who get diagnosed. But there seems to be an evaluation done at a certain age where you have to decide if the risk and benefit is worth doing the screening testing, depending on someone's pre-existing health status. Do you find, is there an age when women no longer need to do mammograms, or how is that assessed?
1: Ah, so big, big controversy when to start getting the screening mammograms. For years, it was 50, and then it was obvious that we were missing the 40 to 50 uh, age range women, so it became 40. And then the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force Said, no, no, don't do it until after 50, and don't do a breast exam, and don't do it every year. It confused a lot of people, because how are you going to find the breast cancer if you don't test for it, if you don't examine it, and you don't check for it? I mean, it is like... So the current uh, American Cancer Society recommendation is 45. If you have uh, increased risk, 40. But in those women who have... BRCA1 or BRCA2, who have a high risk gene, and say their mother was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 50, we're recommending they get it at age 40. If the mother got diagnosed at age 45, 10 years before that, it's going to be 35. Now, when do you, there's a entirely different question is when do you stop getting mammograms? Well, there's a real big controversy with that as well. The recommendations, Uh, several um, guidelines is you can stop the screening after age 75 if you don't have breast cancer and you're not a high risk. Uh, In my particular practice, where we have women living well into the 80s in Hawaii, uh, we'll talk about whether or not they want to continue screening mammograms. But if they've had breast cancer and they're still in their 80s, we will still continue to get routine
0: mammograms for them. All right, well, I feel like we could talk for another half an hour and not even get towards the conclusion here, but I do want to thank you, Dr. William Louie from Castle Adventist Hospital Medical Oncologist for sharing your expertise with us today here on The Body Show. We will definitely have to do this again and talk some more about myths, truths, and the latest in breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org and follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk some more about health topics right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then.